All right. How you guys doing? It's good to be together. Um, how many of y'all were here last week? Every hand that did not go up, I highly recommend that you go and download Suki's message from last week. It was, it was insane. It was so good. Um, but excited to be together again and excited to return back to Matthew. For those who've been at the church, yes, exactly. So for, for those who are relatively new to the ark, we've been going through Matthew, what I thought was going to be a one-year journey. I think it's been close to three years at this point, and it's been delightful and wonderful. We are in chapter 28, y'all. That is, that's, that's the last chapter. So this is not the last message because it's a dense chapter, but we're going to have one more after this on Matthew, and then we are Matthew experts, three years in the book. So before we jump in, let's just uh, bow our heads real quick and and pray. God, we thank you for your word. Man, your word, God, your written word is such a gift, God. God, we know that in other places in the world, Lord, they like sometimes rip up Bibles and give out a few pages to each person because they just don't have access to the word like we do. And so, God, as we jump into your word, God, let us have that kind of value for your word, God, the kind that would, would die for your word, would, would give to see your word go forth. And, Lord, what we ask is that your spirit would rest on top of your written word, and it would bring it to life, and it would bring transformation power, and that it would allow us to live lives that are one with you. Like that worship song was saying, God, What we want to do, God, is we want to live abiding in you and you abiding in us. God, loving you, loving each other. God, this whole, like, oneness with each other and with you for the glory of God. Oneness apart from the glory of God is worthless. And so, Lord, we pray that you would sum up and that all things would be bundled up into the headship of Christ, and God, that you would use this time for that purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. So chapter 28, text will be up here. We're going to read the entire chapter, but we are going to have another sermon on this, I think. All right, verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like that of lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is now going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met with them. Greetings, he says. They came to him, collapsed at his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated amongst the Jews to this very day. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. 
Come on, the risen Christ. So the first thing that we see in this is that the two Marys go to the tomb after the Sabbath. So uh, my first question is, where's everybody else? <laughs> right? Where's the other 11? But imagine on the heels of this awful weekend, right? So the Sabbath is on Saturday. This is Sunday morning. They show up, and they have, for three days, had this guy that they were following around for three years uh, dead in a tomb. They have no idea what's going on. Their whole life orientation is flipped upside down. Their worlds are probably swirling. And even, I don't think it's coincidental, in the first uh, verse here, in verse 1, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. I don't know if this is over-reading into it. Maybe it is, but not went to look for Jesus, but they went to look for the tomb. I think this is reflective of the state of mind that they were probably in at this time. They thought they were following the king of the world around. They thought that this thing was going to happen. They had this very specific image of what it was going to look like to have Christ be the king and come into Jerusalem and, and all of that. And then he dies, this brutal death, and 11 of the guys don't even show up. Two courageous women do. And then there's this crazy violent earthquake. I love this, that the angel, just by coming down and like sitting on the rock, creates a violent earthquake. And then his appearance is like lightning. Like, what does that even mean? Because <laughs> it's not talking about his clothes. It's like his appearance is like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards are so terrified that they fall down like dead men just shaking on the ground. Now, mind you, these are like the most dangerous Roman soldiers that exist, right? Like this is, these guys are not like me, corporate soft, you know, <laughs> church America soft. These guys are like Roman soldiers and they're trembling on the ground, terrified. Now, something that's really interesting about this is what the angel and what Jesus say is leave here and go to Galilee and there Jesus will, will he'll, meet, he'll meet you there now if any of y'all like James have been to the Holy Land you know that the tomb of Jesus that they're talking about is right around Jerusalem uh, Galilee for those of you who don't know is 70 miles away it's not like uh, go down to Bethlehem, which is like right down the street. This is like go to Galilee. It's like an entire region away. It's 70 miles in an environment where you're walking everywhere. This was like a three-day hike for these guys. You know, and it's kind of like, so if the dude's resurrected. Can he like, you know, just meet us here in like a cafe down the street? But like there's some significance about Jesus telling them to go to Galilee. It's not easy to do. So one, it requires a big step of obedience. But two, we need to recognize the significance of Galilee. This was the start of everything that had happened for these guys. Right? These were fishermen. Where were they fishermen? In Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee. Their starting point was Galilee. So this is saying to them, go back home to where everything started. Now, I don't know about you, but when I go back home, something happens to me inside. Have you ever had that feeling? Like, usually you go back home and something is moved. Like, there's a significance to home. If home was tough, then maybe you go back home and you're like, man, I remember my roots. This, I'm thankful to not be here anymore. You know, I grew up in a way that I'm, like, thankful to have been departed. But there's this whole, like, slew of memories that go along with these emotions. I remember one time when Suki and I were, uh, I think when we were dating or when we were married, we went back to my hometown. And even just like driving in, you know, you go like, oh man, like I played soccer on that field, right? Like I cried like a baby in middle school because I got super rejected and I sat under that tree right there. That was the tree where my heart was shattered into a thousand pieces, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, I used to like, you know, whatever it was, skateboard on, on the boardwalk and that was right here. And, you know, but... There's all of these memories that pop up that, that hit you in a different kind of way because it's home. And this was home not only to the 12, but it was also home to Jesus. 
Nazareth is in Galilee, and Jesus spent a lot of his upbringing time uh, in Galilee, and he also, uh, this was where he launched his ministry. So he was walking along the Sea of Galilee. He started calling some disciples. Uh, right after that, a large part of his ministry stayed in Galilee, where he's preaching in the various towns and synagogues. And it wasn't until later that he made the journey to Jerusalem. And so I think when we read this, if you put yourself in the shoes of both Jesus and the disciples, this was kind of like uh, saying like, hey, meet me back to the point where all of this began. Like, where life started for you, where you grew up, where you left your job, where you dropped your nets and decided to follow me, where you saw me do my first miracles, where the, the awe and the wonder of your life walking with, with, with me, with Christ, it all started. Like, this is an invitation back to beginning places for them. And so it begs the question, like, why is Jesus wanting to do that? Why is he wanting to bring them back to beginning places? The thing that I would propose to you as we go through the rest of this passage is that Jesus is bringing them back to beginning places for a very specific reason. Because life got very complex and very hard out there. They, they were in a new awe and a new wonder and a new simplicity, like a simplicity of Jesus when it was all new and things were beginning that got very different when they ended up in Jerusalem. Right? Like, Jesus started talking about how he's going to be killed. That was kind of weird. Like, why did he do that? And then, and then he's actually crucified, and they, it's like horrible and bloody, and all of them end up in fear and end up leaving him. And it's like the memories associated with Jerusalem, I feel like for them would be incredibly complex and incredibly difficult, and there'd be aspects of it that I think in order for Jesus to then go on and give them the call of their life, the call of their life is, is on the other side of this chapter, right? The call of their life is the Great Commission. The call of their life is, hey, for the rest of your lives, you're going to go out, and you're going to create disciples in every nation, and you're going to make disciples of nations, and you're going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to be the one that baptizes people in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gives them this crazy, lofty mission and says, like, basically, the things that I've been doing, here's the baton. All authority's been given to me. Here's the baton. Go out there, do it, charge it. If he had done that without having this moment in Galilee, can you imagine how complex that would be for them? Like, get, get, in, the, get in the shoes of Peter, for example, right? Like, Peter, actually, all of the disciples said, I will never, ever, 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 ever deny you. Like, I will die before I deny you. And even when the Roman guards come to, like, take Jesus, Peter gets up and chops one of their ears off. Like, he's serious about this. He's got conviction about this. But as soon as he sees Jesus give up his life and surrender and, and, and doesn't see Jesus as the warrior king anymore— it's incredibly hard for, G for Peter to walk the bold path anymore. Like, as soon as his image of what this thing that Jesus is going to do in his life and what it means for him is broken, and he's like, wait a second. Like, even Jesus said, like, I love this part. When the, when the warrior, when the Roman soldiers walk up and they say, you know, where's Jesus? And he says, I am, and steps forward, they all get knocked down under his power. Do you remember that part of the Gospels? Peter's probably like, there it is, right? Game on, here we go. And then he surrenders himself and gets like tied up. And then they, care, they take him away and he like submits to the authorities. And Peter's mind starts to like spin out. Like this is not at all what I thought I was following. See, there was an aspect of following Christ for Peter that I guarantee you was pretty self-serving at this point. Like, it's the Messiah. This guy's doing crazy stuff. He picked me. He called me the rock. <laughs> right? He said he's going to build his church on me. What kind of church is this? I'm expect he was expecting this to be something like, I can get behind this. And then Jesus came and totally broke his conception of what this thing looked like. And he goes into a tailspin. He starts denying Christ 
the rooster crows, and he's like completely distraught. This is the associations that Peter would have with Jerusalem. And so, you know, for the other disciples, it was probably pretty similar. There's a, prob- a ton of complexity in there that they would have to get over. And as I was thinking about this passage for us, I really feel like God has been speaking to me about where we're going as a church. And I think where, you know, like, where we're going as a church, this is not meant to be a vision-casting statement, but it has a lot to do with losing ourselves for the glory of Jesus. It has a lot to do with us walking away from from being self-centered. It has a lot to do with us having real substance behind this claim that, Jesus, you're my everything, that I'm your disciple, that I'll follow you anywhere. And I, I, think we're, I think we're going there as a church. Like, what does this really look like for us to be disciples that live the Great Commission? Like, what does that look like financially? What does it look like for my time? What does it look like for moments of rejection? What does it look like for my everyday as I enter my workplace or my school or my classroom? That there's real substance behind the discipleship that's in our life. And I think like Jesus with the disciples, I feel like today it can kind of be a moment where it's like, let's prepare ourselves in a way, and let's allow the Holy Spirit to prepare ourselves in a way where, like Suki was talking about last week, that God can come to us and speak to us the harder things. That God can come to us, and we're not so, like, terrified that he might tell us that something in our life is off. Because guess what? Something in our lives is off. <laughs> like, I, I guarantee you, like, me too, right? I've been praying, actually I was praying this morning, a super simple prayer. And it was, Father, I want more of you. Like, how many of y'all have prayed that, you know, in the last month? Father, I, like, I want more of you. I want more of you. And I felt like what came back at me was, Many say this, but how many of them have lives that say it's true? What substance is behind the statement? And this is God speaking to me, right? Are you praying more as I've led you to do? Are you seeking holiness as to operate as one with my spirit? Etc. But I felt like over the, the past few weeks, I've gotten to this place where I need, I need more of my life that doesn't make sense unless I'm a disciple of Jesus. Do you know what I mean? Like if somebody from the outside looked at my life, could they go like, what? Like that doesn't make any sense. Because our whole life orientation, and this is where Jesus is taking them, right, is about the glory of God. Like the whole um, Great Commission is about making disciples of Jesus of all nations and baptizing people into his name for his glory and, yes, for their freedom. But no part of the Great Commission says, you know, as you do this, I'm going to do amazing things for you. Like, there's no promise of kickback in the Great Commission. You know what I mean? And I think that my experience of life has been, as I've surrendered to God and I've given him things, that there always is a blessing that comes with it. But it's a very slippery slope to start to do this thing for the blessing and not for the glory of Jesus. And so I personally have felt really challenged to put more weight behind this statement that says, Father, I want more of you. Jesus, I want to be your disciple. God, I want to be one with you. And he's going like, great. Like, that's what I want too. Now let's start to do that together. And I think what Jesus is doing here with the disciples, I think he wants to do with us, which is like, bring us back to the simple things. Bring us back to our hometown, so to speak. Bring us back to those memories that we have of Christ where 
it was kind of like those seasons where it was simple and, you know, the, the, those seasons where he called you at first and you responded, or those seasons at first where you saw your first miracle, or the season at first where you experienced his love for the first time, and he starts to simplify things back down to the place where you can hear him with the bolder things. Suki, in her unbelievable sermon last week, was talking about this very dynamic, which was like, let's get to the place with God where we've done the inner working such that he can speak to us and he can discipline us. And he can pull things out of our life that aren't good for, for us and aren't good for our oneness with him. And so I think what we see here with the disciples and I think what the invitation is for us today is before he gives me the rest of my life mission, bring me back to the place where it all started. To the place before there were failures before I was confronted with my weakness like Peter. Like, this is the place where Peter gets back restored. And the crazy thing when you look at the restoration of Peter, Peter had this dramatic failure, this crazy failure. And when he sees Jesus again, he jumps out of the boat, he swims to the shore, he gets to Jesus, they have this moment, they eat some fish and break bread together. And then Jesus has this moment with Peter where they're interacting and he says, all right, Peter, basically, like, it's time to put your past behind you. It's time to forget about the failures. And the way he does that is really interesting. He doesn't talk to him ex specifically and say, yeah, I forgive you for denying me. Like, hey, let's talk about it. Let's do some inner working in your heart. He doesn't do that. He actually goes to Peter and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he goes, you know, I do love it. And he goes, then feed my sheep. It's so interesting the way that he deals with Peter's probably most tender spot is totally different than the way that I would deal with it probably with myself or with, with one of y'all. Right? I'd be like, yeah, man, let's like sit down. Let's talk about it for a bunch of time. Let me just invite the Spirit of God into that, that sore spot in your heart and, you know, like take six weeks and pray about it and, you know. And he comes to Peter and he goes, you love me? And he goes, yes, I do. He goes, great, feed my sheep. It's like, okay, get about my business. Like, you want to move on? Great, consume yourself in loving other people. It's like, st stop making that thing the center point, point of your life and start making my love through you to my sheep and this mission that I have for you the thing that totally takes up all of your vision. And I think he's doing that exact same thing in the Great Commission. He brings them back home. They have this moment. They're all confused. They're spun out. Some of them are still in doubt. Right? They're looking at the resurrected Christ, and some of them are still in doubt, and he gives them this crazy mission for their life. And he goes, great. Like, let's go. And here's the thing that I think is going to happen. I'm like 99% sure that this is going to happen. As we as a church determine, like we are doing in worship today, to corporately live with less of ourselves at the center and more of Jesus at the center and more of his mission center stage as the thing that consumes us in every regard, you know what I think is going to happen? Is that stuff that's been holding on for years that we've been asking the Lord to deal with and just feels like it's kind of clinging and clinging and clinging and that we don't have any answers for and it's been really disappointing because it's still there and we're like wanting that to be gone finally. I think that stuff's going to fall off our life. See, I think we've partially been using the world's answers to solve emotional problems. It's like, you know, you do the thing that looks exactly like the world except for you invite the Spirit of God to be on it. And I think sometimes that's the right answer. I think sometimes we're in a place of, like, trauma and it's real and we need to, like, have counseling and invite God in and do the inner workings. I think it's real. I totally do. I think Jesus brought them back to his hometown for a reason. But I also think that there's a point, and I think we're there corporately as a church, where it's like that's no longer the answer anymore. And there's areas where that's worked, but it's not working anymore. And now the answer is, why don't you just lose yourself in my mission? 
Like, I'm still the same guy that called you to drop your nets. Right? We're sitting in, your, in our hometown. This, it's still me. It's the same Jesus. I'm still the one that wowed you with that first miracle. I'm still the one that your heart came alive when I was preaching. But now it's time for you to go. Now it's time for you to orient yourself in this world to bring my kingdom. And I bet there was an aspect of John, especially, who's like, wait, 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 can, can like, this be the moment where I lay down on your breast again? You know, and like hang out for a while and hear your heartbeat? In John 13, that's what happened when the, uh, you know, the Last Supper. I think it's even on the painting. But I bet there's like a, man, like, I want to do that. And I think Jesus is like, that was last season. This isn't, you know, even, even leaving Jerusalem is a statement against prescriptive answers. Everyone would have thought that Jerusalem would be the place where he'd come back and he'd show himself and he'd do this thing. But he leaves the holy city of David the place where most religious activity goes on in that time, and he goes to Galilee. It doesn't make any sense from a religious standpoint. It only makes sense because Jesus said, go to Galilee and I'll meet you there. And I think there's an aspect of that as we go into this next season that there's a suspension of our own understanding and religious answers that we default back into that we're going to have to allow the voice of God to become more prominent, more forefront, and just lead. And to just lead. When I was interacting with the Lord there and, and asking him about, you know, Father, I want more of you, there were three things that I felt like came top of mind for me. I don't want you to assume that those are the same three things for you. But I'll share with you what I feel like God's doing with me to prepare me for this season that we're walking with and we're going to go into corporately together. The first one is prayer. I feel a conviction more than ever before that my prayer life is insufficient for the place where the Lord is taking us. And I'll tell you, like I've shared this before, but what usually happens for me is I have, I have this uh, conviction almost always. I'll have one day where I, like, pray for an hour, I wake up at like 5.45, get into the, you know, prayer thing, and I'm like, this is unbelievable. It changes the way I walk the streets. It changes the way I'm on the BART. I go to work, and I feel like I'm a shining light to all around me, right? And I come home feeling like I dominated the world. (laughs) Seriously. And then the next day, you know, like it's a half an hour, and I feel awesome, and I go out, and I'm like, you know, it's going, by the end of the week, I missed two days, and I'm, like, struggling to get through the work day, and I, like, get home, and I'm, like, totally exhausted on Friday, and I, like, you know, can't do anything. I just need to vegetate in front of the TV and watch, like, five hours of Netflix. <laughs> I mean, some of that's understandable, because I got, like, two kids, and, like, you know, some, <laughs> some other stuff going on in life. It's not all bad. There's a good place for Netflix in my life, but the prayer part is the important part. The prayer... I feel like ebbs and flows in a way that it just can't. Like, if we're going to live the Great Commission, if we're going to live in a way where we're surrendered and going after Jesus and full of boldness and and living in a way that doesn't make sense to the world, it's going to have to be built on a, like, a really solid bedrock of prayer. And I want to remove like leaving Jerusalem, I want to remove any sense that being disciplined about your prayer life is religious. Right? Just pray more. (laughs) Don't make it so complex. Go back to Galilee. Just pray more. Seriously. Like, oh, am I feeling guilty because I didn't pray? That's fine, actually. Like, (laughs) feel, feel guilty. It's okay. Just go pray more. Like, if the guilt starts to, like, paralyze you, then you can throw that stuff off, and, you know, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1, gotta love that one. You know, like, get that stuff. But, like, don't allow it to be so complex. 
if you're going to be good at prayer, you're going to have to do it more. And if you're going to do it more, like, you're going to need some discipline. Just go do it. <laughs> right? Like, Mike Bickle is a guy who prays probably more than most people on earth. I think we can all agree to that. He runs the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. And he still says that he needs discipline to go into the prayer room. So, like, I think we're, we're all going to need some discipline, even when we're really good at praying, like Mike Bickle. But that is number one. Let's pray more. Cool? No more excuses. Simplify things back down. Let's just meet with him consistent, consistently in a place of fellowship, no matter what's happening. The second one is let's set apart ourselves for holy living. See, the goal of our life is oneness with his spirit. Like, literally, you don't know where you end and he begins. That's oneness. You're like, was that my thought or was that his thought? I actually don't know. Was that my prayer or was that the Spirit praying through me? I, I actually don't know. Like, which part of my sermon was God resting on? The whole thing? I don't know. Like, it's just like, you know, it was all anointed. I don't know what happened. <laughs> but like, what we're going for both corporately and as individuals is to be one with him. It's not like my money and his money. Oh, like the tithe is his and everything else. No, 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 no. Like, it's like, we're one. That's like being married and like having your own bank accounts. You know, or like, I may... <laughs> Conviction just fell in the... <laughs> to my right. <laughs> There's no separation in this stuff. Like, do you have separate houses? You know, it's like, it's oneness. Like, think about that. It's oneness. It's like, same thoughts, same actions, same hopes, same dreams, same finances, same energy, like all of it. That's what we're going for. And holy living is a recognition of this. Holy, holy living is this. It's saying, I understand who I'm called to be, and who I'm called to be needs to be something that's set apart and different. Right? Like, there's all the same everywhere, and then there's holy, which just means set apart in the Greek. So don't, don't make this feel like it's a return back to legalism or something like that. But did you know that the biblical view of how salvation works. I'm going to ruffle some feathers right now. The biblical view of how salvation works is kind of faith alone. Like, I think in the 1500s when Martin Luther got intense about this, it's because works had totally spread themselves through the church to the point where people thought it was just all about works. Like, you could pay your way into heaven. Like, somebody dies, and you give a bunch of money to the church, and that person is saved because of your finances. And Luther was like, this is madness. And he steps back from the church, and he goes, you guys are out of your mind. This is about faith in Christ and faith alone. And this, this huge, sweeping reform happens through the church. It's super healthy. But you know what's happened now is I think that, like, we think that salvation happens by just saying some words and saying that we're now disciples, but then life doesn't look like anything. That, that is, that's not at all actually biblical. Like, when you look at it, there's so many times in the Bible where Jesus would be like, okay, like, then, then, do, then do what you should do. Like, that was his thing. Like, okay, you, you, like, you want to do this salvation thing, then, then act rightly. You know, and then you, and you read Paul, and he goes, live a life worthy of the calling of Christ. It's like, what, what is supposed to happen is you have faith in Christ, and as you have faith in Christ where your full will is to do his will, then he empowers you to live holy. Unless, unless there's the empowerment to live holy, the circle is incomplete. And so I think, honestly, I think the church has put way too much emphasis in our modern day on just the faith part. I think everybody gets that now. It's like, you know, did you know that um, not that long ago, like decades ago, when people got saved, like when somebody said the, the prayer, you know, like, okay, you ready to say the prayer? Yeah, let's, let's say the prayer. 
they didn't think they were saved until they had an encounter with Jesus. Like a large portion of the church, they would go through this process where they would go and pray and fast and seek God for like weeks and weeks and weeks and months until they had an encounter with God. And when they had that encounter with God, that was their evidence that they, that something had happened. Now, I'm not saying that we necessarily need to return back there, but I'm saying that there, there's something to be found in that, which is that this wasn't some casual thing where we, like, come to God one, you know, one day and we, like, raise our hand in the back and then it's just, you know, fire insurance and then you're, like, good for the rest of your life. That's, like, not—that's not biblical Christianity at all. There's such a better call than that. That is such a, a low version of what God has intended for us. Like, the privilege of our life is the empowerment unto holy living. Like, the fact that he puts his spirit in you and then empowers you to be able to live like this, to be able to live like him, is like the good news. That is the good news. And so I think this, this set apart for holy living is kind of the second thing that in, in pursuit of oneness and the thing we need to do in terms of preparing our heart for this next thing that God has for us. I was reading Psalm 18, and in verse 20... Check this out. So I'm going to do a little raise of the hand thing, and y'all are bad at participating, but I want you to participate after I read this. How many of you feel like you could pray this prayer or you would pray a prayer like this? Okay, that's, the, that's going to be the survey, okay? Here we go. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. <laughs> Should I just stop right there? <laughs> According to my clean, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept, my, kept the ways of the Lord. I'm not guilty of turning from him. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him. I have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Survey time. Holy smokes, Right? I feel like my prayer is the opposite of this. Like, Lord, pre please reward me according to the righteousness of Christ. But I think there's something actually really healthy about this. You know, like, we all know the life of David. It wasn't a thing of perfection, right? But I think there's a boldness and a confidence that he has before the Lord to recognize that he's living in a way that is different and set apart. You know, like, he's— there's a lot of his life that is totally true of this. Like, if you think about—don't think about perfection necessarily— don't think about perfection as necessarily the standard, right? Because then you just fell below it, for sure. But if you think about the righteousness of David and that God said, this is a man after my own heart, I think there's aspects of David's life that we could say— yeah, I get, why, I get why you're saying this. And he screws up a ton. Like he murders a dude and takes his wife. And there's plenty in David's life that isn't lining up with this statement right here. But there's plenty that is, too. And I think there's something, there's like a, there's like this freedom, I think, of, of, of living in a way where your conscience is clean. Yeah. And I don't think that that necessarily, I don't think that that needs to be the place where we've reached perfection. So I, I think there's this intensity in David. I think there's, you know, when, when, when God says that David's his guy, he says, here's a man after my own heart. Not, here's a perfect man. And I think that, like, in my own journey, there's been victories that I've had. And there's been times in my life where I've felt really good about my walk with Christ. Right? And I've been like, man, I'm like, I'm really going for this thing. And, 
And right as soon as I start to think, I'm feeling really good about this, and I'm like going for this thing, there's this little gauge, this like governor that's inside of myself that says, yeah, but don't feel too good about it. I don't know if you guys have that. But I actually think it's, I'm starting to think that it's a toxic gauge. I think that the enemy, by twisting around what this needs to look like, leads us to be insecure and to feel like we never have a place before God where we can be bold. So what, so what happens is one side of the church, and I think honestly, uh, because in the past my own personal uh, shame around sin stuff, like I just have this, this measure of perfection, like I'm a recovering perfectionist, and so I'm like trying my hard, hardest all the time to be perfect, and so I think when I'm not, it's really hard for me to hear the rebuke of the Lord. But I feel like with David, there was this kind of like, there was this freedom to live with God where he's like, no, I feel like I'm doing great. I feel like I'm going for it. I feel like, I feel like I'm going after God. And then there's moments where David says, but if that's not the case, Lord, search me and know me. Like, expose my heart. There was this freedom with David where it was almost like he didn't need to be perfect in order to feel righteous. It's super weird. But I think there's something in that for us. Like, if, if we're waiting for perfect holiness before we have any confidence before God, how are we ever going to pray for the nations and expect something to happen? Right? Or, like, how am I ever going to get up here and preach with boldness? Like, I know there's unyielded parts of my heart, right? There's a big difference between that and being cavalier about our sin and our, you know, the stuff that's going on in our life. And so I feel like the right posture for holiness is we cannot be cavalier about this stuff in any regard, but we also can't sit around navel-gazing all the time and expect, like, the only time that we have confidence before the Lord is when everything is right. There's got to be this combination where we're fully in, where we're fully going for it, where our heart is going for it, and we just go, you know what? Like, I feel good before the Lord with the way that I'm living. I feel good before the Lord that, like, I'm doing my best, man. Like, I am really, I'm doing better than I did yesterday, and I'm going to be doing better tomorrow, and I'm, pr I'm trying to pray, and I'm not going to get discouraged, and I feel like there's a level of holiness and righteousness that's before me, and God, you know that I'm after your heart. And so, like, I think there's a, a big difference, and this is where the whole, like, you know, the, faith, the, the over overemphasis on the faith part of things goes is where it's like, you can't just go, well, I'm covered in the blood of Jesus, and I guess there's just stuff in my life like everybody else's. It's like, no. No, 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 no. That's the cavalier version of this. There needs to be an intensity that says, no, I'm going to go after this holy thing, holiness thing. I'm going to get the sin out of my life by his grace. I'm going to pray more so that I have more boldness. I'm going to go after this thing in a way— but when, I, when it's not perfect, that's okay too. I can still be bold and confident before the Lord. It's a, you know, we oftentimes say in this church, it'd be a whole lot easier if we operated in the black and white, but we don't. We operate in the gray in this church. And what we usually mean by that is when you're in true relationship with God, there's less areas of your life where you're just like, oh, that's the clean right and wrong answer. Right? Like, there are plenty of those, but there's also a bunch of other areas where it's like, is this true for me, or is that—that's not true. That's not true for me. So let me give you an example. This one's pretty vulnerable. So for a long time, I've been, try I've been praying for myself about the place of alcohol in my life. Uh, for those of you who know me, I have, like, a pretty tattered past with alcohol. Uh, in college, it was, you know, the centerpiece of pretty much my social life, etc. And so I've kind of been going out of this— like this in and out of place of like, oh, yeah, I'll have a good relationship with it, and I'll just have a little, and then I go, no, I don't like it because it makes things complex, and I'll, oh, well, I'll have a little. So it's like this ebb and flow back and forth thing with the, just like the area of alcohol. Suki and I, I think like a week or two ago, we were having a dinner, 
and we like toasted a glass of white wine, and I felt, I felt okay about it. And I said, Lord, like, Lord, we're feasting to your glory. And I took a sip, and I totally choked on it. It started coming out my nose. It, like, it ruined my entree. <laughs> it, like, it, like, came all over my dish, and I was, like, choking. So he's like, what is going on with you? And I felt like, because there's a new resolve in me to go after this, like, I want to be one with him. Like, man, I want to operate as one with him. Like, I don't want to be selfish. It's so easy to become selfish. Like, I really don't want to become selfish and self-centered, and even my Christianity orients around me. Like, I really want to go after that. And I felt like, as my fire and as my determination to live a holy life increased, I felt like his tolerance for what he'd tolerate in my life started to go down. And I felt like this was the moment, probably, I'm not going to make a vow here, that was probably the last time that alcohol ever touches my lips. Because I felt like it was a moment where I was sitting there with God, where I was like, this is fine for so many people. This is not fine for me. And I felt like I would have gotten rid of it a long time past if there wasn't a worry about, one, being overly religious, and then two, I just like drinking a glass of wine. But there was this moment where wine was burning my nostrils, and I was like, I was like, God does not want this to be a part of my life. For some reason, for me, this is just not good for our oneness. And I'm going back to a simple place where it's like, God, I'm just like, I'm just done. And it just becomes simple again. And Ryan's opinion? Ryan's opinion. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? So, for those... For those who don't know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it's super intense. There's straight-up power and revival going through the, new t- the church in Acts. Uh, the dead are raised. The power of God is flowing crazy. People are getting saved in the droves, like 3,000 saved in a day, 2,000 the next day. I mean, it's just like God is going crazy in their midst. And this one couple sells a piece of land— and lays it at the disciples' feet, but misrepresents it as the whole sum of money, not, I'm giving you half. They're trying to posture that they're doing what Barnabas did and others did of selling everything they have and laying it at the disciples' feet, when actually money had polluted their heart, and they held, they held back a portion of the, of the sale. They come to Peter, and Peter gets told by the Holy Spirit that this pollution is going on in their life, and uh, Ananias is the first one in there. He drops dead. They carry him out. They bury him. His wife comes in later, and, they, and he asks, he's, you know, he says, hey, did you guys sell this field, and did you give everything? And she goes, oh, yeah, we gave everything. She drops dead, and, they, and he says, like, the, the feet of the p- people that just buried your husband are at the doorstep, and she drops dead, and they bury her. Now, this is hard, hard Bible reading, right? What I think is going on there is when there's, a level of ho- when there's a level of power and glory in the midst of the church, the corresponding holiness that's required in the church is elevated. Like what God will allow and tolerate to be in our lives in that kind of environment is, is extra more offensive because the revelation of who he is and what he's doing is so strong that the denial of that thing is even stronger, right? It's like the denial in this environment is way worse than the denial where that stuff is not going on. And what I felt like even in worship today is I felt like what God was saying to me is as I elevate my glory in this place, as, as the glory increases, as we pray for real revival, the kind where the glory of God is palpable and tangible and people are getting saved and healed and the expressions of the kingdom are more obvious, the demand for holiness will be higher as well. And here's the part where I say it with total, like, reverence, because I'm in this too. 
but I think what he'll tolerate in our lives without direct discipline will be lower as well. And so I think he's looking for a people that are willing to make that trade. I think he's looking for a people that hear that trade and go like, yes, I'm in. I, I, will, I will trade the glory of God for the things that pull me in the world and the things that I've tolerated and the things that could defile this beautiful, perfect thing that you're inviting us into, which is oneness with God. It's oneness with God. And so what I don't want us to do is leave feeling like, man, if, I, if I'm not perfect, then I have no place in this thing. That's not it. But what I do want to do is, like, I want to hopefully spark a fire in us of, like, let's get intense about this thing. Let's have a determination and a fire inside of us where all of it's going in the same direction. You know, like, our, our prayer life is worth getting up to, to meet with God with in the morning. And our no against the things that we know are not conducive to oneness with him, you know, it's, it's there and it's strong enough because the vision beyond it is worth it. And so that was the second thing that I felt like God was really speaking to me. I have one more. Suki's got something. Yeah, just, hello? Hello? Yeah, real quickly, as Ryan was sharing... Um, just kind of to balance that out, I just wanted to say, like, what is one person's conviction should not be extrapolated to be everyone's conviction. I think the, this, the, the reason why we talk about the gray area, there's black and white places, right? Like Jesus is the Christ, the one way. And then there's areas where the Bible requires us to live in tension, and requires us to interact with his Holy Spirit. We cannot create formulas for what holiness looks like. It is, it, it, there are certain things that are very clearly sin. Definitely don't do those things. There are certain things that the Bible talks about that, every, that it is okay to do, but not necessarily beneficial. We're talking about those areas. And I, and I think that it's really, really important where I feel like a lot of times the church has gone wrong is the areas in which it requires relationship and specific um, direction from the Lord, and it is his conviction for you. When we have applied that to other people, we have gotten into trouble. And so I think it's really important that as God puts a zeal for holiness in our own lives, that we do not start looking at other people wondering why that is not happening for yeah. them. That is when we start Judgmental. to fall into a place of judgment. Because the thing is, we must be driven by compassion and fire towards God, not to look at others and what they are being convicted or not convicted of. And so I really just want to extol and just like add an addendum to what um, Ryan has just said, because I think it's really important, because what's God going to hold us to is really those convictions that he has spoken to us about. And so I think it's really important to make sure that as we pursue holiness, as we pursue rightfulness, that we are really honest with God about what are the things in our hearts that keep us from really being able to be one with him, hear from him, and live in good conscience with him. Yep. And that may or may not extend to somebody else. Yep. So I just wanted to add that. Thank you. Uh, the last one is, I feel like there's going to be a corporate, um, corporate expression of this. You know, I think, um, I think we're, in a lot of ways, so used to living a Christian life that is about me and my personal relationship with the Lord, that I think that, you know, how could it not get kind of self-centered in that environment it's like well he doesn't need anything and so then necessarily everything in my life that happens must be about my own development and so I guess this whole thing is about my own development 
See the extension there? That's not, that's not cool. Uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because corporately we're the body of Christ. And he's, he's, he's gotten so serious about this stuff where, you know, like the oneness thing where like you don't know where that ends and the other begins. The other one that's like that is when you love somebody else in his name. It's like, are you loving him or are you loving that other person? Same thing. Right? He said, did you give that person a cup of, of cold water? Like, yeah, you did. And, and when you did that, you gave it to me. It's like the same thing. That's because the oneness thing is shown right there. And I think there's going to be some stuff that he does with us just about, you know, the idea of sanctification is certainly in the Bible. The sanctification is this process of becoming holy. But there's a lot of other stuff in there, too. And so I think we just need to make sure that corporately— all of this stuff doesn't end up with the conclusion at the end of the day of like, oh, this is just God working f something for me in my heart. Yeah, it's like, it's all about making me better and all of a sudden Christianity is like this self-actualizing thing that like, yeah, God's doing, but it's still self-actualization at the end of the day. And I think what we see in this passage is right in their moment where they would probably be most interested in going the self-actualization route that's when God turns them outward and said, I'll tell you the way self-actualization will happen is as you lose yourself completely in this mission of being outward and loving people. Like, that's how you're going to, that's how this is going to happen. And so I think there's going to be a bunch of stuff that happens with us. Even like, you know, like I was very intentional today when, when we were singing worship songs. I went up to join. I said, like, let's make this a corporate cry because I th think we should start thinking about that more. You know, like we should start thinking about what this looks like for all of us, not just us. When we're singing worship songs, it's not just like, am I feeling it today? It's like, no, no, no. We're here together. We're coming together as a body to celebrate, celebrate the bridegroom, right? And, and I think we, in a lot of ways, we can diminish the pressure of like all the navel-gazing and the, all the self-analysis stuff by getting lost in our corporate identity. And one of my prayers for us this season is that more of the way we do life together would be a corporate identity rather than such an individualistic identity. So that's what the Lord's been speaking. <laughs> And in line with that, I actually felt this in the middle of my message. I'd like to pray for us corporately, not do the upfront prayer time with the name badges and the individual stuff. Again, there's a place for all of this, but I think right now what it looks like for us to respond to the Lord is for us to let's just to stand together and let's pray corporately together. All right, let's pray. Father of glory, we just recognize you as the center and the creator and the origin of all of this stuff. The, the difference between you and us is like the, the difference between um, a, a person in their painting. I mean, it's like, it's even more than that, but you're, you're the, you're the self-existent one. And you're so central that what you say has value has value, and what you say doesn't have value does not have value. You're the one that defines everything else because you in your person are truth. And so you're, you're, the you're, you're the definition of truth. And so, Lord, we just, um, we just corporately come 
And we say, God, that we want to be a church that you're pleased to inhabit. In the scriptures, it says that the eyes of the Lord search to and fro throughout the earth for those whose hearts are fully his. And I believe that that's what what David was responding to in his righteous, his his self-righteous comment. I think he was responding to his heart that he knows was fully yours. And God, I ask by the power of your spirit, God, that you would sweep through this church and corporately we'd have this experience of you, God, where our hearts are fully yours. And God, I pray, God, that even the preparation for not a long way off, like the now, is, God, that you're encouraging us, like you did with the Great Commission, to lose yourself, lose ourselves corporately in the delight of serving him and the singular focus of seeking his kingdom, his righteousness, and God, really centering our lives on what it looks like to make disciples of all nations. What would it look like if there was a group of people that all of their energies and resources, that their one thing corporately was to disciple nations and see the glory of Jesus exalted on the earth? What would that look like, Lord? We ask for your guidance. We ask for your strength. God, that's the direction that we want to go. And Lord, in the, in the area of the trade, of your glory for the things of this world, God, we choose your glory. We choose your glory, God. Father, we want to want you more than we want anything else. And I pray that you would come. We just say that our hearts are often deceptive and fickle. We're constantly needing you to point out the places in our hearts that we didn't know we were holding on to stuff. But Lord Jesus, I pray that we would never be afraid that you want to take it, but rather, God, that you would draw us near to you by the invitation of what it could look like to live with more of you. And really, Father, that's what we're saying here. And I pray, Father God, that we would be a people that want nothing more than we want you. We don't even know what that means, Lord. We just, we say it. But at the same time, Lord God, look upon our prayers. And I ask you, Father God, to to give us more of you. To help us want you and every place where we don't even realize that we don't want you. I pray that you would be so kind that you would show that to us. In your infinite kindness, God, reveal to us the places where we haven't invited you in. So that every single part of us is yours. Places where we have adopted the mindset of the world and not yours, I pray that you would expose. That's right. Yes, God. Every single idea that is carnal in nature, every single thought and orientation in us that is our soul and not our spirit, that is aligned with you, I pray that you would reveal and invite us to let go of. Yes, God. Yes, God. And we believe and we trust and we know that there is no good thing apart from you. Yes, that's right. If we think there is a single thing that is good apart from you, right now I expose that lie. There is no fruit. There is no life separate from you, Father God. That's right. And maybe there's a temporary goodness, but it is not long-lasting. It That's is right. not eternal. And we want only that which is eternal, Come long-lasting, yes, and life-giving, oh yes, God. God. So That's lead right. us, Lord God, through a process yeah. where we can embrace more of you and allow our lives to be characterized by you, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And God, just specifically, I feel like you're highlighting right now any areas where the corporate dream 
has taken too much of a center stage. God, any areas where our corporate life has become one or nonprofit or whatever profession, any ways in which that has become an area that's holding too much of uh, our hope or our identity and has pockets outside of you in terms of who you are as provider and who you are in terms of uh, even the mission on our life. God, we just say that there's a, a thing in the world that says the mission of the organization that I work for is worth me laying down my life for. Uh, and God, we just say, God, that to the extent that it is in your kingdom and glorifies your name and the extent that it's surrendered, there's an aspect of that that's true, God. But every area outside of that, God, that is just, that's following a dream that's not your dream. And so, Lord, we just ask in that area, God, that you would do a work to set your people free. And finally, Lord, we just, um, we just want to respond also to the, the word about just a self-centered Christianity. God, I pray that as we go forward, not in a, a way that elicits a bunch of shame, and I pray that you'd keep this pure. I pray that you would allow this to be a thing where you show us what it looks like to walk with you at the center. And the delight of getting lost in a life that is purposed after you. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask, God, that you would just, uh, you would walk. I, I thank you that you even took the disciples back to Galilee, to their hometown, to make things simple, to set new beginnings. God, I pray that this would even feel like a, a place of new beginnings for our church and for individuals. We give you the glory and we give you the honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all. We're done. Have a blessed evening.